This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. That blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Every woman needs makeup. Don't let anybody tell you different. The only woman pretty enough to go without makeup was Elizabeth Taylor, and she wore a ton. In the pursuit of wrongdoing, one steps away from God. Of course, there is a price. I have done battle every single day of my life, and many men have underestimated me before. This lot seem bound to do the same, but they will rue the day. Those were just a few of the iconic performances and many accents of legendary actress Meryl Streep. Among her more than 60 films are classics and blockbusters like The Deer Hunter, Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, Silkwood, Out of Africa, Postcards from the Edge, The Bridges of Madison County, The Hours, Music of the Heart, The Devil Wears Prada, Doubt, Julie and Julia, The Iron Lady, The Post, and most recently in the second season of HBO's Big Little Lies. She holds the record for the most Academy Award nominations for acting, with 21 nominations and three Oscar wins, and she is widely regarded as the greatest actress of our time. But she's also a feminist who has spoken up for women's rights more than any other actress in Hollywood, a generous advocate and philanthropist who puts her money where her mouth is, and a remarkably private person who leads a relatively normal and quiet life with her husband, sculptor Don Gummer, on their 90-acre farm in Salisbury, Connecticut. Now entertainment reporter Aaron Carlson takes us behind the curtain and celebrates America's greatest actress in a new book, titled Queen Meryl, The Iconic Roles, Heroic Deeds, and Legendary Life of Meryl Streep. And today, Aaron joins me on the podcast to discuss the charmed career of Meryl Streep from her early years as popular homecoming queen to playing 40 different roles in three years and becoming a legend among her peers at Yale Drama School. Aaron delves into Jane Fonda's mentorship of Streep on the film Julia, Meryl's rivalries with Madonna and Jessica Lange, and the behind-the-scenes drama between her and Dustin Hoffman on Kramer vs. Kramer. She says that the late actor John Cazell was the love of Meryl Streep's life, and she shares how he helped her hone her craft and how she got over his tragic, untimely death. We talk about acting over 40, how Meryl became a champion for better roles and equal pay for actresses, and how she navigated doing business with disgraced mogul Harvey Weinstein. Plus, Aaron weighs in on Meryl Streep's best performances and most underrated movies. Coming up with Aaron Carlson in just a moment. Aaron Carlson has covered the entertainment industry for The Hollywood Reporter and the Associated Press, and her work has also appeared in Glamour, Fortune, and the Los Angeles Times. She's the author of I'll Have What She's Having, How Nora Ephron's Three Iconic Films Save the Romantic Comedy, 
And now she writes about the woman who is arguably the greatest actress of our generation, and perhaps any generation, in her latest book, Queen Meryl, The Iconic Roles, Heroic Deeds, and Legendary Life of Meryl Streep. Erin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Erin, I think we can tell from the title that you have a lot of admiration for La Streep. Uh, do you consider yourself a Meryl superfan? Um, of course. I mean, who isn't a Meryl superfan? Donald I Trump. I feel like there's a str- <laughs> Donald Trump. Oh, my God. How did I forget about Trump? Um, I try to forget about Trump, but you can't yeah. because he's everywhere. Um, and, you know, he was the one that, who tweeted um, in that 3 a.m. toilet tweet that she was the most um, overrated actress in Hollywood. Right. But I think that even made her stronger than before because we all, all of the streepers, we closed ranks around her and protected her. And they were, we were like, no, you're you're completely wrong. Right. And the irony is that he said that the day after she received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes. <laughs> I mean, leave it to the Donald to tweet something totally inane. Well, I should tell people that this is technically not an authorized biography, although I doubt that there's much that Meryl Streep would object to in this book. When you decided to write the book, did you reach out to her to ask for her participation? Oh, of course. Um, There were letters and various overtures. And the thing about Meryl is she's so so private yeah and she's not going to talk about how great she is because that would be the most egotistical thing ever (laughs) so she's going to leave it to me her biographer to do that for her yeah you describe an interesting situation in the book shortly after the miniseries holocaust aired and she's walking around new york city and a vw (laughs) van drives by and some guys lean out the window and yell hey holocaust hey holocaust (laughs) at her and how surreal that was for her has she ever been very comfortable with her fame no it's funny that you mentioned that and she was so disturbed by that episode that uh, she unlisted her phone number because fans were calling her already and that tv movie was extremely popular and it enhanced her profile. And then she went to do movies, which made her even more famous. And in 1980, she got the cover of Newsweek. And the headline said, a star for the 80s, Meryl Streep. And she was kind of horrified by that. So she was taking the subway and she saw the magazine down in the subway and she felt that it was so surreal to be that famous because she didn't want to be that famous because she's an actress and her bread and butter is observing people out in the wild as inspiration for her roles. Yeah, and she seems to have had a similar relationship with awards because I know that early on she would say that she didn't believe in awards that put one actor's performance against another. And yet she admits that she also craves the accolades. Now that she's set the record for Oscar nominations, do you think that her love-hate relationship with awards leans a little more toward love than hate? Oh, she loves to win. The thing about Meryl is she's extremely competitive. So that part of her that loves to win always outranks the part of her that thinks it's unfair to rank one performance above the (laughs) other. So she has said 
that she craves the attention and she craves the accolades like any grande dame of her stature. At the same time, she doesn't love all the politicking that that happens mm-hmm. around Oscar award season, you know, Oscar season, award season, the whole, you know, rigmarole. She thinks it's soulless. I feel like she still thinks that way, but most of her just wants to win. <laughs> She's ambitious. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask you about her background before acting, although it sounds a little bit like she was more or less acting even when she was a teen and not just on stage. You talk about how in high school she suppressed her loud, assertive self and almost okay. willed herself into being this very agreeable, popular girl, cheerleader, homecoming queen. It's an interesting contrast to the Meryl Streep that we know. Do you look at that period in her teens as maybe even her first real acting role? Absolutely. So the real Meryl is bossy, opinionated, still fun, but extremely um, expressive. And, you know, she stands up for herself. But that didn't go over well with the kids in her neighborhood growing up in New Jersey. She had brown, frizzy hair. She had glasses. She was a bit matronly. Her classmates thought she was the teacher. You know you know what I mean? She was one of those kids who looked older. Mm-hmm. Like, we all knew kids like that growing up. And she was kind of tired of it. So she decided to embark on a transformation. She read Seventeen magazine. She lightened her hair. She straightened her hair. She adopted a giggle and an easygoing persona. And she's not totally easygoing. And she wanted to be appealing to men. To boys, I mean, I should add. To boys. And she succeeded at that. And then she became homecoming queen. Yeah, she seems to have an interesting relationship with her looks. And there's also a great story in here where I guess she was up for the remake of King Kong in the 70s and she auditions for the producer Dino De Laurentiis. Can you tell that story? So um, she goes in for one of her first major auditions. Dino De Laurentiis is this major producer. He's Italian. And she goes in there to read the part that went to Jessica Lange in the 1976 remake of King Kong. And she walks in and Dino says to his son in Italian, this is so ugly. Why do you bring me this? (laughs) Little does he know that Meryl went to Vassar and studied Italian at Vassar, and she can understand every word he's saying. So she responds to him in Italian, I'm sorry you don't like this, This is, but this is what you get. What you see is what you get. Then she stood up and walked out. Wow. <laughs> she Good failed the audition. Needless to say, Jessica Lang won it. Uh, yeah, but in the end, I suppose it kind of worked out in her favor because, as I recall, that was not the best of the King Kong movies, was it? Oh, no. I mean, um, a fun role for Jessica, but I think uh, Meryl dodged a bullet there. And it's funny, with Jessica Lange, she has never really been jealous of any other actress Mm -hmm. except for Jessica Lange. Really? Meryl always wished she was more beautiful, more conventionally beautiful. She always wanted, you know, Jessica Lange's legs. Um, She was jealous of... Jessica's role as Patsy Cline in Sweet Dreams. And Meryl had always wanted to sing, loved Patsy Cline. So she just ached for that role. 
and she lost to Jessica Lange, and it always haunted her. Later, she realized that it was a huge waste of time wishing she were more beautiful, but a big part of her um, wished that she had that face that mm -hmm. could just say it all, like especially in a romantic role like in French Lieutenant's Woman, uh, which required her to, to be this elusive Victorian beauty. Meryl felt like she couldn't pull that off. That's fascinating because I was wondering if she's ever had any kind of a famous Hollywood rivalry along the lines of her and uh, Goldie Hawn in Death Becomes Her or Crawford versus Davis. Is that the closest thing? Oh, it was so I was uh, being um, a journalist and biographer. I was sort of hoping for one of those. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Meryl. Sorry, Meryl. Um, I would say there might have been a one sided rivalry with Meryl and Madonna. <laughs> yeah, because, so, yeah, because what Madonna took Evita from her and then she later took uh, what was the film from Madonna? Music of yeah, the Heart. Yeah, Music of the Heart. So yeah. Meryl has one sided rivalries with actresses uh, when it comes to roles where she would get to sing. Mm -hmm. So she had seen Patti LuPone on st on stage in Evita in 1979, and she just desperately wanted to sing that part, which I think she would just nail. So in the late 80s, Oliver Stone was going to do the movie adaptation mm -hmm. with Paula Abdul <laughs> choreographing, <laughs> and uh, Meryl did a dub. She was, you know, all signed on, but salary negotiations forced her to walk away. And then Oliver Stone walked away too. And then a few years later, when she heard that Madonna, you know, had taken the role of Evita, she said jokingly, or maybe it was half jokingly, I could rip her throat out. <laughs> wow. One thing that stands out about her in this book is that She's almost led sort of a charmed career because even when she was starting out at Yale, you say that she was a little bit of a minor celebrity among her peers. In fact, they even nicknamed one of the acting classes Merrill's class. And then she moves to <laughs> New York and almost instantly starts getting cast in plays. And she's sort of mentored by Joe Papp at the public theater. She wasn't exactly the typical story of a struggling actress paying her dues, was she? Oh, no. I mean, and that was part of the... Um resentment of her toward uh, other ingenues is that she didn't have to wait tables. Mm -hmm. Well, she waited tables at Yale School of Drama <laughs> or the Yale School of Trauma, however you want to say it. <laughs> uh, but she didn't have to. So she basically just got to New York and started working. Um, you know, Joe Pat cast her in her first public theater show, um, Trelawney of the Wells. She had a marginal role, but made a big impact and later um, starred in Shakespeare in the Park and Measure for Measure. And everyone was buzzing about her. Everyone. She was the it girl, but she had the talent to back it up. Mm -hmm. While at Yale, she spent three years at Yale, she did something like 40 different roles wow. <laughs> in three years. And her classmates <laughs> loved her, but also were sort of jealous of her because she was taking all the good parts. Mm -hmm. And I guess her big break was the film Julia 
And there's another great story in here about her co-star, Jane Fonda, actually teaching her how not to miss her mark on set, because that was, I guess, her first film. Did Fonda sort of act as a mentor to her? Absolutely. So, um, like, imagine doing your first movie and acting scenes opposite Jane Fonda, and you're a young actress, and Jane Fonda is, you know, or Meryl said she had some like a feral quality, a feral alertness. Um, nobody was more confident than Jane Fonda. And so Meryl was intimidated, but she was loosening up and loosening up and just cracking Jane up, just making Jane laugh. And um, they had to film another, you know, they had to film another take because Jane was like, hey, Look at the floor. That's your mark. You need to stand it on that mark. Otherwise, you're not going to be in the movie. And, um, you know, get in the light. So it's those little things that Meryl didn't know that Jane sort of taught her and um, was really a mother hen. Then when Jane got back to L.A., she was telling everyone about this, you know, amazing young actress that she met and opened doors for Meryl that Meryl didn't even know about. And this was around the same time that she had an ongoing relationship with the actor John Cazell, who people probably know best as Fredo from The Godfather. They lived together for something like three years, maybe four years, and then it ended in tragedy when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was by his side through this gradual decline, and he eventually passed away. How did his death impact Meryl? Oh, she um, she was devastated. Um, I truly believe this was the love of her life. I mean, she's in a long, happy marriage, but I believe he was her maybe first and greatest love. Really? Wow. Yes. He understood her uh, on a soul level. Mm -hmm. He understood her passion for acting and her commitment to her craft uh, as no other, and he taught her things. He taught her to not just go with her gut instinct about a character, her first take on a character, but to question the character's motives, to really dig deep and do the research and have more questions than answers. And that impacted Merrill. He was methodical. His directors called him 20 questions because he couldn't just shut up. He had to like really probe into a character. In that sense, he was quite a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. Well, since you brought up her husband, she's been married for decades now to the sculptor Don Gummer. We don't really know that much about him. What is their marriage like? I think Don would prefer it that way. Right. (laughs) And she probably (laughs) Um, would too. I mean, she's very proud. Oh, yeah. September 30th will be their 41st wedding anniversary. She married him six months after John Cazal died. And um, she had to leave their home in Tribeca. And Don was a friend of her brother's. So Don was like, hey, I'm going to go on a trip around the world. You can stay at my place while I'm gone. So she wrote letters to him and they were pen pals. Then um, he returns from Asia with, um, you know, his... Uh, foot in a cast. You know, he's on crutches. He had a tri- like a motorcycle accident in Thailand. And then um, two months later, they got married at her parents' home in Connecticut. 
And her mom goes to Joe Papp, the founder of the public theater. What is she even thinking? Because she was still kind of mourning Kazal. Joe Papp had seen her, um, you know, off stage at, at a public theater production, just kind of upset about Kazal's death, literally a few weeks before her wedding. But he knew that Meryl does what's best for her in the moment. And the truth is, Don is a really talented artist and a really good guy. He's a rock. Mm-hmm. He's also like John. He is soulful, soulful funny, um, stable, <laughs> and just a really decent person. Mm-hmm. And I think Meryl took comfort in him. And they've now had four children together who, by all accounts, are well-adjusted, happy, successful, the exact opposite of the postcards from the edge Hollywood kids type story. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I think that one or two of them have followed in her footsteps into acting, right? Oh, yeah. Um, um, Mamie and Grace. So she has four kids, Um, Henry, Mamie, Grace, and Louisa. Henry's a musician. He is you know, very oldest child, very understated and a little off the radar. But Mamie and Grace have made an impact on Broadway. Um, They've been on television and in movies. Um, Mamie's first big appearance was as Meryl's uh, toddler daughter in Heartburn in 1986. And the camera would stop rolling and she'd be like, go again? Like she got the bug. They got the bug. Um early on as kids, and that was scary to Meryl. Meryl was wary of that because she knows how hard the business is, especially sure. for women. But she embraced uh, she embraced her kids' ambition to be like her because she understood why they would want to be actors. I think she was mm-hmm. empathetic, and they were watching greatness in action, mm-hmm. and it sort of rubbed off on them. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Aaron Carlson when we come back in just a minute. Folks, you know what a history buff I am, so I want to tell you about a fun new podcast from Stitcher called Lost at the Smithsonian. It's a pop culture history podcast exploring the little-known stories behind iconic artifacts from the National Museum of American History. It's hosted by former Daily Show correspondent Asif Manvi, who takes listeners inside the National Museum of American History as he shares smart and fascinating insights into cultural items like Fonzie's leather jacket and Dorothy's ruby slippers. Along with National Museum of American History curators and celebs, Asif traces just how these special objects came to define our culture. Listen and subscribe to Lost at the Smithsonian right now on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Well, I want to ask you about her first Oscar-winning performance in Kramer vs. Kramer. Kramer vs. Kramer was a pretty interesting choice for an avowed feminist like Meryl Streep because the book and to a lesser degree the movie were almost a backlash against the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s. But ironically, it's also probably the film in which she had the most creative input. Talk a little about what you call her insertion of subtle feminism into Kramer vs. Kramer. When she got the script for Kramer vs. Kramer, she didn't love it. And she told the director 
Robert Benton and the star Dustin Hoffman that she wanted to um, humanize Joanna and make her more sympathetic because the book and then the script had cast Joanna as the villain, the the bad mommy who leaves her eight-year-old son, her adorable eight-year-old son, with her husband and goes off to California to find herself. But she wanted to elicit audience sympathy for Joanna and what she was going through because, in her opinion, Joanna Kramer was depressed. And there wasn't really a language, and there was certainly a a stigma about that back then, where you weren't really allowed to talk about depression or mental illness. And um, that's what Joanna had. And Meryl thought that she was courageous by making that decision that her son would have a better life with his stable father than with his mother, who was going through some stuff and just needed to figure stuff out. So Meryl really advocated for her character. She rewrote the dramatic courtroom scene um, to make it um, more sympathetic. And people were in shock. They loved her speech. She did take after take after take and nailed it. And Robert Benton was like, no, you got to save your stuff, you know, save up your stuff because we're going to do a lot of takes. But she nailed it each time, a little different each time. And I think the movie was better for it. And in the case of life imitating art, there was also some (laughs) famous behind the scenes drama between her and her co-star Dustin Hoffman on that film. What was at the root of the friction between them? Oh, my gosh. So. Dustin was amazing in this movie, but he was also a huge jerk. And speaking of characters who are going through some stuff, uh, he was going through a divorce with his wife, Anne Byrne. She left him after 10 years because she wanted to revive her dancing career. And so he had, I think he was projecting his feelings about his wife onto Meryl because he's a method actor. He was trained in the actor studio. So you mine your personal life and trauma in order to inhabit a character. And Meryl doesn't do that. She works from the outside in. So she does all of her advanced research, but she gets into character through um, observation, costume, and makeup. So that was their friction because they had different acting styles. What is her process when she's preparing for a role? Does she do a lot of research? Uh, How does she do the accents? Does she have a dialect coach? No, she doesn't. Um, she's done 12, <laughs> 12 different accents, I counted. <laughs> and um, she has only used a coach for Sophie's Choice because she had to learn Polish and German. And then she had to learn a Polish accent. I mean, she can do the accents, but it's harder for her to learn the languages, obviously. So mm-hmm. she definitely needed a tutor for that. <laughs> but She is a a bit of a wallflower. So for um, Silkwood, she went to the mall in Texas and observed how people talk and uh, adopted that Texas twang. And she's a mimic. So she's had this ability ever since high school where she wasn't the greatest student, but she was placed in the advanced placement language classes because she couldn't master the grammar. She hates grammar. But she could master the accent and the dialect. So she has an amazing ear. And she, 
I think, single-handedly transformed the, the dialect industry. I mean, I've had a dialect coach tell me this for the book, but um, she became the standard uh, to whom other actresses and actors, I should say, uh, compared themselves because after Sophie's Choice, everyone's like, shit, excuse my language, <laughs> I want to win an Oscar. I better hire a dialect coach. Right. And if you didn't, <laughs> if you couldn't master an accent, oh, she made you look so bad because Robert Redford was supposed to do a British accent for Out of Africa. But a week before filming, he's like, no, I'm going to stick with American. <laughs> and he got some flack for that because... Uh, Meryl went above and beyond and is doing this Danish aristocratic accent. But Robert Redford, who got top bill billing, uh, he couldn't he couldn't even talk British. Now, most of the great actresses of Hollywood's golden age, like, say, Lauren Bacall or Ingrid Bergman, had a certain type and they were famous for playing certain kinds of women on screen. Meryl, on the other hand, she's all over the place, from an Italian war bride to Catherine Graham to a nun. It's very hard to pin her down. Are, are there certain hallmarks to a Meryl Streep movie, or are there certain things that she looks for in a role? Yeah. Um, so obviously I've thought a lot about this, and um, there's a common thread uh, between her best characters and I think it's they are tired of pleasing others, mostly mm -hmm. pleasing men, in order to be accepted by society. So I'm thinking um, Lindy Chamberlain in A Cry in the Dark. That was Meryl's <laughs> first big true crime role where she was playing a woman who was falsely accused of killing her two-month-old daughter, who, in truth was taken by a dingo in the outback. Right. That's and where the phrase, the dingo ate your baby, came from. A dingo, right? maybe a dingo ate your baby, um, Elaine from Seinfeld. Oh, look at the accents with you here. <laughs> That's impressive. Oh, it's funny you say that because um, I can pick up accents because I watched, oh gosh, like 65 Merrill movies. <laughs> really? I was watching Antiques Roadshow the other day because I'm a nerd like that. And there was a, a woman from New Zealand and the show, they were doing an episode in Palm Springs. And my husband is like, oh, what accent is that? I was like, that's New Zealand because A Cry in the Dark, her character grew up in New Zealand and then um, moved to Australia. So she had Australian with a tinge of New Zealand. But I know the difference now. And um, I had met a Polish woman and I was like, oh, you're from Poland because I had seen Sophie's Choice. Oh so I feel gosh. like I've traveled the world with Meryl. It's, yeah. it's kind of funny. Wow, that's amazing. So she's helped you pick up accents when you're out and about now, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder, what do you think is her most underrated performance? Maybe a movie that wasn't terrific, but she was great in it. Um, it's a movie called Ricky and the Flash, okay. which came out in 2008. 12 and um she plays this <laughs> she plays this um rough around the edges uh cover band performer kind of this deadbeat mom who leaves her family behind in connecticut to go chase her rock star dreams and just kind of falls through the cracks and like she's 
you know, singing Tom Petty songs in Calabasas or no, in Tarzana in the Valley <laughs> okay. and trying to make it. And she's um, like a George Bush supporter. And she's like, I support the troops. Don't we all? But she obviously has never read a newspaper. You know, she's just not really introspective. She's an unlikable kind of ignorant character. But you like her um, because little by little, Meryl peels the layers back and reveals a woman who on the surface just seems like an idiot, but is actually somebody who is wise and brave and lives their truth and is actually a good mother because she goes back to Connecticut. Her daughter has attempted a suicide attack and she helps her daughter recover. And it's wonderful to see. And also okay. Mamie Gummer. Mamie Gummer was in that movie. <laughs> That's her daughter, right? <laughs> her daughter was going through a divorce wow. at the time from Benjamin okay. Walker. Huh. Well, I got to see that. That's one I have to add to my list. I've seen a lot of Meryl Streep movies, but I don't think that I've seen that one. Now, yeah. in the early 90s, her career takes a bit of a slump, not coincidentally around the time that she turns 40. And in 1990, at a Screen Actors Guild National Women's Conference, in fact, I think it was the first conference that they ever held, she gives this famous keynote emphasizing the lack of opportunities for women, pay parity, female role models in the industry. This was back when Hollywood was still very much male-dominated. I don't think that Sherry Lansing would take over at Paramount for another two years. Did she receive a lot of backlash from the boys' club for that? Yes, definitely. So she was just, you know, she had two Oscars to her credit, but she was still making half as much as her male co-stars. So in the mid-80s, that was Robert Redford and Jack Nicholson. And she was just pissed off about that because here she was, this decorated actress, and she still had to prove her worth and her value. And in Hollywood, that's measured in you know, box office and, um, you know, your salary and blah, 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 blah. So um, she was also pissed that, for instance, Rick Moranis was making just as much money as Michelle Pfeiffer. That's Catwoman. She's like, how could how could that happen? Yeah. So she gave the keynote speech at uh, the Screen Actors Guild's first women's conference, and it was super fiery. She went off on um, the salary disparity between um, men and women, you know, actors, and how all the good roles for women were being reduced to, in her opinion, and she was exaggerating, prostitute roles. She said something like, um, given all the role, good roles that women had this year, you would think the chief occupation for us is hooking, and I don't mean rugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I reference Pretty Woman. She yeah. went off on Pretty Woman, which was the biggest movie of that year and had a breakout star in the form of Julia Roberts, who was 19 or 20 at that time. So it was annoying for, I'm sure, Julia and other actresses to see Meryl, you know, Queen Meryl with her Oscars, you know, take a platform like that because in their mm -hmm. opinion, they were lucky enough to get a role like that. They would be so lucky to get a role like Julia Roberts. And who is Meryl to tell them, um, you know, don't take that role. It's bad for women. Or to 
talk down to them when they were just trying to work in a man's world. So she wasn't seen as heroic. She was seen as petulant. Mm -hmm. And other actresses distanced themselves. Um, What they didn't realize was that she was throwing down a lifeline for them to speak up 20 years later. You know, when Me Too started, you know, feminism started rumbling again. It wasn't a dirty word anymore. And then Me Too happened. Other actresses felt compelled to speak out because she had been doing it for so long Mm -hmm. and she paved the way. Well, I have to ask then, when she accepted her Oscar for The Iron Lady, uh, she singled Mm -hmm. out Harvey Weinstein for special thanks, calling him a god. That kind of came back to haunt her. Uh, They had worked together, I think, on quite a few films, and she later got some flack for her praise for him. What can you tell us about their relationship? I feel like you always have to be careful what you say, too. Like, (laughs) It's always going to come back to haunt you, um, as we've learned with cancel culture. But um, she called um, Harvey God, the Old Testament version. So... (laughs) There was a little bit of a wink in that comment, and the okay, truth so is— Okay, so a vengeful god, in other oh, words. Oh, yeah. I think <laughs> she, she knew he was a jerk, but I feel like he is an abuser, and abusers hide their abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, they target victims who don't have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. So I think he saw Meryl as an equal. I think he was afraid of her. I think that, you know, like his— great lengths to surveil his victims. I think he went through great lengths to keep his behavior a secret from stars like Meryl. Even though she had starred in a number of his films, the only time she was in his office, she said, was when she and Wes Craven, the director of Music of the Heart, went to his office in Tribeca to talk about that film in like 1999. And I don't think that a lot of people know just how much she has done for women and supporting feminist causes like the Museum of Women's History and other projects. Um, Could you talk a little bit about uh, the stuff that she does off the screen in terms of supporting women's causes and in some cases even creating organizations to help out? Sure. Um, uh, When Time's Up, Hollywood's response to Me Too was formed, she donated half a million dollars. Wow to a legal fund for victims of sexual harassment. And then um, two years before Me Too, she created a writer's retreat through the Writers Guild and uh, for women over 40. So it's hard for women over 40 or women in general sometimes to get a break. Um, Like Phoebe Waller-Bridge would be the lucky one. (laughs) (laughs) So Meryl thought that she would help out um, women of a certain age, middle-aged women, because those women have the experience to write the roles that she would want to play. Mm -hmm. So she underwrote this retreat that's been going on for about four years now that matches um, new rookie women writers who've written promising scripts with um, seasoned producers so that they can groom them and kind of Tell them what the business is all about. Mm-hmm. The business is a tricky place to negotiate, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> sure. And she certainly seems to have had the last word in her fight against the Hollywood Boys Club. Because when I look back at all of her male co-stars from the 70s and 80s, De Niro, Hoffman, Nicholson, Redford, they've all retired, or at least they work very seldomly today. And yet Meryl is still going strong. 
What do you think is the secret to her having outlasted all of her male contemporaries? Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like, to me, it's weird. It's unusual. She's broken barriers for, um, you know, women in their 70s, and she's still incredibly bankable and an icon. I think the difference, though, is that um, she works at it. I think Nicholson, love him. I think he's happy just sitting, you know, courtside at a Lakers game. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I've made these amazing movies. I don't need to make any more. She's like Steven Spielberg. Um, He doesn't, he can just sit back and like, he's got so much money and like, he's a producer and has a lot of other plates spinning, but he still wants to direct movies. He is compelled by it. She is like Spielberg. um, She is compelled toward acting. Mm -hmm. It's in her blood. She has to do it. And what's funny is that she would say, oh, I just sit by the phone and wait for a call. I don't proactively seek roles because good roles are so few and far between for women my age. The truth is she actively pursues them. And she's not upfront about that. Interesting. Uh, for instance, um, huh. Little Women is coming out. Greta Gerwig's remake is coming right. out in December. Yeah. Greta Gerwig directed Lady Bird, which was a phenomenal movie. And Meryl saw that, I'm sure loved it. When she heard Greta was doing Little Women, she lobbied for that part as Aunt March. Oh, and um, huh. Greta wasn't like not, not going to give it to her. I mean, Meryl <laughs> lends star power, credibility. Sure. But Greta also gives uh, Meryl relevance. So Meryl has been extremely good, even going back to Spike Jones and adaptation, at sustaining her career through working strategically with younger, hot talent. Yeah, absolutely. And she's nurtured a lot of them. And I mentioned a minute ago the Oscar she won for The Iron Lady. Uh, Streep is pretty well known as a political liberal, sometimes more outspoken than others. What was it like when she starred as Margaret Thatcher in The Iron Lady? How did she portray someone whose politics was so diametrically different from her own? Oh, that's Meryl for you, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's always um, she's always surprising us. <clears throat> um, always kind of wanting to push back against expectations of what she would do. So she was attracted to Margaret because there are tons of biopics about, like, male politicians, Mm -hmm. you know, like Nixon. uh, There's just so many, so many that have been done throughout the years. But this was the first movie about a prominent woman politician. And I think she was attracted to that, not because of Thatcher's politics, but because of what that role represented for women. Well, real quickly before we go, I have to ask, what in your opinion is the best Meryl Streep performance of all time? Oh, my gosh. That's like uh, having me choose between my children. Oh, that's a <laughs> bad know. joke. That's a bad joke. That's uh, so cliche. Um, My favorite performance or her greatest performance? Uh, well, okay. Let's do both then. Okay. Greatest performance, Silkwood. Mm-hmm. My favorite performance, Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A little guilty pleasure there. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I think that probably her last performance was her best, in my opinion. I loved her in Big Little Lies. Oh, my God. I I just thought that she was just so incredible. And that character was so nuanced. The fact that she was this kind of quiet, mousy little grandmother 
who had this agenda and was so passive aggressive and the way that she would test boundaries and then feign ignorance and innocence. I mean, I thought she was absolutely brilliant in that one. Again, the book is called Queen Meryl, The Iconic Roles, Heroic Deeds, and Legendary Life of Meryl Streep. Erin Carlson, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Erin Carlson for coming on the podcast. Order her new book, Queen Meryl, The Iconic Roles, Heroic Deeds, and Legendary Life of Meryl Streep on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickAssNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.